Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. Um, just a quick vote. Let's raise your hand real nice and high and keep it up for a minute so everybody can look around and see who's got their hands in the air. Raise your hand if you stayed up till midnight on New Year's Eve. Okay, now keep them up for a minute. I'm going to ask a second question, and I'm curious to see if it's the same hands. Raise your hand if you are under the age of 40. Not entirely the same, but a lot of the same hands. <laughs> nice. I think you hit a certain point where you're like, you know what, it's kind of all the same. You know, whether I stay up till midnight or if I go to bed at 8.30, it's still going to be the next year when I wake up. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. Happy New Year. Today, as mentioned before, we are starting a new series on the book of Hebrews, and the Lord willing, it will take us the next 15 weeks right up until Easter, which makes it sound like Easter's coming pretty close. 15 weeks goes by in a hurry. Uh, if you're not aware, we have in the past when we've done other series, teaching series on a particular book of the Bible, we get ESV study journals, and we have a whole bunch of them. I believe they're out at the Welcome Center. Can someone confirm that? So I won't, my feelings won't be hurt if you want to get up right now and run and go get one. Uh, they're available for you. You can take notes in them. They're, they're really helpful to just kind of keep track of our progress through the series. So if you want one of those, go grab it. Uh, the idea for today's message is to get like a big, wide uh, view of what Hebrews is all about. That's what we do when we often start a new series. We kind of get this like bird's eye view. And um, if you haven't noticed it already, that's going to be the theme of our series. Hebrews, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Because here's the truth. We have... An enduring, eternal, unshakable hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? And what we're going to see throughout this book is there's a lot of pointing to the Old Testament. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come in handy that we did the Exodus series about a year ago. Because uh, you're going to remember a lot of things from that. But you're going to see these pictures from the Old Testament that give us a shadow of Jesus, a shadow of the promise that was to come. And then Jesus arrives and he is the, the substance of that shadow. He's the substance of that promise. Jesus is better. And my prayer for you and for me as we go through this series over the next 15 weeks is that we will be inspired and motivated to make our pursuit to find and know and grow in Jesus. Amen. I have a friend, uh, my wife and I have a friend who we haven't actually seen in a long time, but um, many years ago when we were around her more, she was famous for saying this one phrase all the time. She didn't invent it, but she used to say it all the time. Uh, pursuit is the proof of desire. Pursuit is the proof of desire. If you want something, the proof that you want something is you pursue it. So my prayer is that we will come to a point where we pursue Jesus, no matter the cost. The word you're going to hear today and throughout this series is persevere, perseverance. And that seems like a great thing 
to be talking about at the beginning of a new year, 2022, which is crazy that it's 2022. If I had a favorite book of the Bible, just personally speaking, this would probably be it. It's kind of hard to have a favorite book of the Bible. It's like asking what a you know, to have a favorite color. There's so many good ones, you know, like how can you pick? It's, I feel that way about the, the Bible. But if I had to pick one, this would, be, this would be it. So this is, I'm really excited about this. So why don't we pray and then we'll jump into the material for today. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful to you. We're so thankful that video we just watched shows us so many reasons why we are thankful to you, Lord. You have brought us through much. You have given us much. And we know, Lord, that you have much in store for us. Lord, help us today to hear you. Help me to hear and speak your words and change our hearts, Lord, mine included. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to start because this is the introduction to the series. We're going to kind of lay a foundation of context of this book. We're going to answer some questions that are very basic. Who, when, where, and why was Hebrews written? Let's answer those questions, and then we'll eventually get into the what. What's the message of Hebrews? But let's start with the hardest question, and I say it's the hardest one because we don't know the answer to it. The first question is, who wrote Hebrews? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know, okay? A lot of New Testament letters that you, I'm sure, have read and are familiar with start with a greeting. They start with this very clear statement of who's writing the letter and who they're writing it to. In fact, if you back up just a few pages in your Bible from the beginning of Hebrews, the letter right before that is Philemon. And Philemon starts like this. This is the, very, the first three verses of Philemon. It says, Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, you find out who it's from, Paul and Timothy, and you know who it's to. It's to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and everybody else who goes to church with them. But there's, there are none of those specifics at the beginning of Hebrews. We don't have any statement of greeting like that. Whoever the author is jumps right into the material. And he jumps in with like one of the most epic openings of a book in the Bible, I think. It's so amazing. It's, it's kind of hard to beat like, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Like that's a pretty epic <laughs> beginning. That's a pretty epic event. But listen to how Hebrews starts. It goes like this. The first four verses of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is great writing. That's amazing content. Wouldn't it be great if we knew who wrote it? <laughs> but we don't. For a lot of years, the, the going assumption was that it was Paul. In fact, that's why Hebrews is located in your Bible where it is. 
There are 13 letters in a row, starting with Romans, that were written by Paul, and we know that because the greeting right at the beginning says Paul's writing this. Hebrews is placed right after Philemon, the 14th one, because it was assumed that Paul wrote it. But there are significant differences in styles and the ways that arguments are presented in Hebrews that brings the whole idea of Paul writing this into question. And there's one verse in particular that pretty much rules Paul out. If you've read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, the second half of that verse, it says this, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. How does that rule Paul out? Well, if you look at that closely, there are three parties represented there in that verse. There's this message, and it was declared by the Lord. That's the first, the source of the, of the message. At the end of the sentence, there were those who heard that message directly from the Lord, and then those who heard attested it to us. That's the, the pathway of this message. And the author of Hebrews clearly is in that us. He's in that middle part, the third part of the message, which is in the middle of the sentence. But he's clearly writing from the perspective of us. Paul would not have done that. If you look at Paul's letters, he many times puts himself in the same category or the same level as the apostles who were with Jesus and received their ministry directly from him because Paul received his call directly from the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. So Paul wouldn't do that. He wouldn't, put, he wouldn't say a sentence like that. And so we can kind of rule Paul out as writing Hebrews. There are other possibilities. It's possible that Barnabas wrote it. It's possible that Luke wrote it. It's possible that Apollos wrote it. You remember hearing about Apollos? He was introduced in Acts 18 as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Sounds like the kind of person who could have written an opening like Hebrews 1. But the reality is, we just don't know. So the answer to that first question, who wrote Hebrews, is it's unclear. We don't know. What about the second half of a typical greeting? To whom is Hebrews written? Who are the recipients? Well, we can do a little better here, okay? To whom is Hebrews written? Look again at the opening. In Hebrews 1.1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And if you look at the second half of that verse, it points to the fact that those who this letter was written to would have considered themselves to be part of the people of Israel. And we know that because God sent his prophets to the people of Israel. He did not send his prophets to other nations. Now, there were times in the Old Testament where the prophets who came from Israel did speak to other nations. Jonah is a good example of that. Any prophet who spoke during the time of the exile is an example of that. But those prophets came through God's people, Israel. So we know that this letter is written to Jewish people. In fact, more specifically, we know from the content that it's written to Christians who were part of a Jewish community. They were born Jewish. They were part of that culture, but at some point, they became believers in Jesus Christ. Now, now think about this. Depending on their age, these could have been, uh, these could have been Jewish believers who, when they were born, they had never heard of Jesus. 
And so they lived in the, the Jewish culture. They did the things that Jewish people did. They, they followed the Mosaic law. When they sinned, they offered sacrifices at the temple. They did all of these things that were a normal part of their life. And at some point, someone told them about Jesus. They heard the gospel and they became believers and they were saved. But it's also possible, because we're going to get to the question here in a bit about when this was written. It's also possible that they're younger and they've never known a time in their lives when Jesus wasn't someone they had heard about. Perhaps their parents became believers before they were born. And so they've grown up learning about Jesus and learning about faith in Jesus. But they still would have been in this Jewish community and understood far more than you and I do what the implications of the Mosaic law were and some of the things that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. I mean, I could be totally wrong about this, but I don't think there are many of us in this room who were born Jewish. I don't know, I've never have in my life had to uh, sacrifice an animal for the forgiveness of my sins. And I don't know anybody who has, right? These people would have had a much clearer understanding of what that meant. So that leaves the questions of when was it written, where was it written, and why was it written, and they're all related to one another. So let's ask the first one. When was Hebrews written? Well, we can be pretty sure that it was written before the year 70 AD. Does anyone, and you can feel free to shout out this answer if you know it, does anyone know what important, important historical event happened in like Jewish history in the year 70 AD? The destruction of the temple, that's right. The destruction of the temple. If you're not quite sure what that means, if you remember, there was... Uh, in Exodus, we learned about the, the construction of the tabernacle. Eventually, Solomon built the first temple. That one was destroyed. The second temple was built by the original King Herod. And, though, and then that would have been the one that was around during the time of Jesus' ministry. But in 70 AD, the Romans kind of got fed up with the Jews, and they moved into Jerusalem and basically destroyed the whole place, including the second temple. So how do we know that Hebrews was likely written before the year 70? Well, it's because the author, whoever it is, speaks about the ongoing practice of sacrificing animals, this ongoing practice of taking a sacrifice to the priests who worked at the temple. He talks about it as if it's a present, ongoing thing. He doesn't mention anywhere in the book about that practice being ended. He talks about it as if it's still going on. And we know that once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that practice, that practice ended. And so we can assume that this letter was written while the practice was continuing, and so therefore it was before 70 AD. So, so we're starting to kind of focus in on the context of this thing, and I want you to use your imaginations a minute, okay? We're not, we're not looking to alter what Hebrews says. We don't exactly know a specific date. But I don't, I don't think it will hurt. In fact, I think it will help if we kind of use our imaginations and try to set this in our minds. So I'm going to ask you to pretend for a moment that this was written in the year 64, six years before the destruction of the temple. 
nearly three decades or approximately three decades after Jesus ascended into heaven. After he rose from the dead, he appeared to many, and then he ascended into heaven. Thirty years about have gone by. Think about what happened 30 years ago from 2022. Think about all that's happened in the past 30 years. A lot can happen in 30 years, right? So about 30 years has gone by. It's been enough time for the gospel message to spread all around the known world, for the early church to get planted in all kinds of various places, for completely new people to be born into this world, having never known a world without Jesus. All right? It's a lot has happened in those 30 years. And it's important to think about that because now I'm going to ask you to think about what the, the next question is. Where, where was Hebrews written? Well, we can be fairly certain, in fact, we can be, I would say, absolutely sure that this was written and sent to someone who lived in the Roman Empire. And that's because pretty much everywhere in the world was the Roman Empire at this time, okay? The Romans were the, the power in the world at this time, and they had taken over vast areas of the, of the known world. And so it's likely that this was in the Roman Empire, but I'm going to narrow it down again and ask you to use your imaginations because I think it will help us to understand the focus of this letter. And I want you to pretend that this letter is being written in the year 64 in the city of Rome itself, in Rome, Italy. That whoever wrote this sent this to a group of Jewish Christian believers in the city of Rome. Why? Well, because at the time, there was an emperor in power in Rome. He came into power in the year 54. His name was Emperor Nero. When he became emperor, he was 17 years old. 17. There are several 17-year-olds in our group of, uh, in our community here at this church. Imagine one of them, any one of them, being emperor of the known world at age 17, okay? <laughs> Crazy thought. Nero was a bad guy, all right? To put it very, very lightly, he lusted for power. He had massive amounts of power and he wanted more. And he wanted to be able to exercise that power free from any oversight from anyone. So very early in his reign, he had his mother, his brother, and his first wife murdered. In the year 64, it's widely believed that he caused the great fire of Rome. You remember the story, Nero burns Rome, right? Do you know why he did that? He wanted to build for himself a massive, opulent palace called the Golden House, and there was no room to put it. Other people's properties and homes were in the way, so he just set fire to them and burned them all down so that he could build this home for himself. And then, on top of that, he needed someone to blame, to take responsibility for that fire. So guess who he blamed? Christians. He blamed Christians. They were a convenient scapegoat because there weren't a whole lot of them at the time and people didn't like them very much. And so he began this persecution of Christians for crimes they didn't commit that he had committed. And what he would do was find them and imprison them and eventually 
burn them alive to cause their death in the way that the fire started, that he started. But he was blaming them. Not a nice guy. It's widely believed that the persecution of Christians during this time under Nero brought about the martyrdom of both Paul and Peter. So he had a large effect, a big impact on Christian history. And that when, the year 64, and that where, the city of Rome, under the rule of Nero, brings us to the why. Why was Hebrews written? And the answer is perseverance. The answer is perseverance. Now I want you to imagine, imagine that you're one of these believers. You've been born into a Jewish community. You understand how the Mosaic law works. You understand how the custom works. You probably know a lot of people who have not become Christians, who are still practicing Jews. You're living in first century Rome under a tyrant, and you are surrounded everywhere you go by people who, where you lived, where you worked, where you uh, shopped or did business, uh, any place you gathered, you were surrounded by people who were likely to identify you as a Christian, Christian and turn you over to authorities just to keep Nero happy. It would have been a terrifying time and place to live. And so these young Christians in a very early time in the church, a very young church, would have been extremely tempted to step away from practicing Christianity, to walk away from the faith. That may be here for us in 2022, like, I don't think anybody's like judging them for their decision to do that, but we could kind of think, why would, they, why would they do that, you know? But if we think about it, like, this whole idea of Christianity hasn't been around for very long. And they were waking up every morning with the very real possibility that this could be the last day of their lives. And not only their life, but the lives of their family members. I don't think any of us, when we woke up this morning, got ready for church, thought to ourselves, am I going to be able to make it to church and back today without getting arrested and imprisoned and possibly killed just for being a Christian? Probably none of us thought that, but that was a very real thing in the lives of these people. And so the author of Hebrews was saying, persevere, persevere. Don't give up on what you've been taught no matter how scary things look right now. He spends a lot of time throughout this book establishing exactly who Christ is so that he can set up this argument to press on. And that brings us to the most important question, and that is, what is the message of Hebrews? Like, what in the world argument are you going to make as the author of this letter that is going to convince people who could be burned alive for being a Christian to keep pressing on in the faith. What in the world are you going to say? Well, whatever it is, it was super effective because the letter of Hebrews has been inspiring people for thousands of years to continue in the faith despite very real threats. We all know when we look back over church history that there have been so many people who have died for the cause of Christ. 
And any one of them could have denied their faith at, a time, at any time and chosen a path that seemed to be much more safe, seemed to be much more safe. But this argument in Hebrews has inspired people in, in the threat, the very real threat of death to continue on in the faith. What is that argument? Well, the argument in a nutshell is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. We just got finished with the Christmas season. Some of you are probably aware that um, a pastor named John Piper uh, published a devotional. I don't know if he did it just this Christmas or if it's been around for years, but he, he put out a devotional to kind of go with the season of Advent. It was called Good News of Great Joy. And in one of those devotional days, he talks about the book of Hebrews and how it relates to Christmas. And he says this, one of the main points of the book of Hebrews is that the old covenant system of worship is a shadow replaced by Christ. So Christmas is the replacement of shadows with reality. Jesus is the replacement of shadows with reality. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is better. All of that study that we did of, of the Old Testament law when we were looking at Exodus last year, all of that stuff was valuable and, and important and helpful. But every single bit of it was a shadow pointing to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, now Jesus is here. The substance is here. And he's better than every single one of those shadows. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean. This may seem like a, a ridiculous example, but it helps me and I, I hope that it helps you. Let's imagine for a moment that you want to go see something, get in your car, go on a trip, go see something that you've never seen before. And let's say that that thing that you want to see is the Washington Monument in DC. You've seen pictures of it. You've seen it on TV. You've never been there yourself. You want to see it for real. So you get in your car, pack your bags, map out your trip. It's going to take a couple hours to get there. You drive to D.C. You park in Silver Springs, Maryland, because the traffic in D.C. is too, too difficult. So you get on the metro in Silver Springs, Maryland. You take the train into D.C. You get off at the metro stop at the National Mall. Okay, you're getting closer and closer to seeing the real thing, the real Washington Monument. You take the gigantic escalator up to the outside, where it opens to the outside, and you walk out into a beautiful, sunny day. Let's say it's like 10 o'clock in the morning and you're standing on the National Mall, and the Washington Monument is there. But for whatever reason, you don't look at it. You turn your back to it, and you look at the shadow of it. Because at a, about 10 o'clock, on a beautiful sunny day, the Washington Monument's going to be casting a pretty long shadow. So you look at the shadow of it. Well, what are you going to see? What are you going to learn? You can learn a lot of things by looking at the shadow of the Washington Monument. If you're standing there on the National Mall, you would probably have a pretty good idea, without even looking at the real thing, you'd have a pretty good idea of its shape. You'd have a good idea of its scope and size. You would, it seems silly to say this, but it would be important, you would have the confirmation that the thing really existed. Because you've seen pictures of it, 
and you've, you know, you've seen it on postcards or whatever, but now you're in a place where the thing actually is and it's casting a shadow, so it must be there, right? So you can confirm that it really exists. You can look around and see other people looking at the monument, and from their faces and their reactions, you can see just how like epic and amazing it is. You can read on their faces what they're seeing. So there's a lot you can learn. But wouldn't it be so much better if you just turned around and looked at it yourself? Wouldn't it be so much greater of an experience if you turned around and looked at that giant thing? If you walked up and touched it and felt it and walked around it a couple of times and stood real close to it and looked up, wouldn't it be so much more of a valuable experience to see it with your own eyes than to just look at the shadow of it? You agree? Well, that's what this is like. The Old Testament is like that shadow. And the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus and who he is, is the actual real substance of that shadow. And that's the argument that the author, whoever he is, is making. Jesus is the promise fulfilled. What I'd like to do as we continue and, and finish out this sermon is I want to I look at three shadow realities, like okay, three shadows from the Old Testament that have become realities in Jesus that the author of Hebrews talks about at some point. There are more than this, and we're going to be covering these things throughout the next 14 weeks. But I want to point to three that kind of get the big view of, of what he's trying to say. And the first shadow reality, shadow reality number one, is the shadow presented in the old covenant priesthood. Remember we learned about the priesthood that was established. In Hebrews 7, it says this, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Amen. So, I already mentioned this before, but in that old, in that old shadow, there was a required sacrifice for the atonement of sins. All right? So, if you were living back in the time of Moses and you sinned, which was inevitable, you had to present at the temple to the priests an animal that would be sacrificed. The priest's work was this, this cycle of sacrifice all the time. They had to sacrifice for their own sins. They had to sacrifice for the sins of the nation. They had to sacrifice for the sins of individuals who brought sacrifices to them. And the crazy thing for us to imagine, who live in 2022, is that that system was effective. It was. It was effective. It was given to them by the Lord. The Lord said, this is what you should do when you sin. This is what you should do in these various situations. And so, of course, it was effective. It just didn't last. Okay? They would, they would bring their sacrifice. The, sacri the, the priests would do their thing. Their sins would be forgiven. And then what would they do? They would go sin again and they would need to sacrifice all over again. The priest's job, this cycle of sacrifice, could 
never end because sin never ended, right? It never ended. People just kept sinning. So the talk about job security, right? Like the priests, the priests had jobs permanently. They had to. And not only that, they could do this job until they grow, grew old and passed away and they would have to be replaced with a new priest and more and more and more because sin never ended. Jesus is the only priest we need now. He's the only one needed. And why? Because death no longer has dominion over him. Listen to what that last verse said. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is not a priest who is going to grow old and pass away. He is permanent. And that's not all. Listen to this, Hebrews 7, 28. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That is exactly what David was talking about when he read that uh, scripture from Hebrews during communion. He willfully, willingly, did this once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all. Well, what does that mean for us in 2022? Because this happened a long time ago. What it means is, and you've heard it a million times, but I hope it hits you like you've heard it for the very first time. You are forgiven. If you've believed in Jesus, you are forgiven forever. Forever. Imagine yourself standing on a timeline of your life. And it goes backwards a little ways to when you were born, and it goes forward for eternity. If, if that timeline had the stain of sin all over it, when you believed in Jesus, all of that stain was wiped away off that timeline. And it stays like that permanently. Now think about the difference in perspective for those who lived under the Mosaic law, under this shadow of something to come, as opposed to us who live under the new covenant. All right, so under the law, if you were one of those people standing on their timeline, there was a fear, a constant fear, of falling out of right standing with God. Not only was there the fear of it, but it was inevitable. You knew it was going to happen. You knew you were going to sin and fall out of right standing with God. And when you did, you had to act. You better act. You got to sacrifice you got to go. you got to do it in order to get back in right standing with God. In an effective system, but you had to act. How is that different for us who are in Christ Jesus? Fear is completely removed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your right standing with God is secured. If you're standing on your timeline and your sins are forgiven, does that mean that you don't have to worry about it and you can just sin whenever you want? No, of course not. Of course not. But we strive to live righteously before the Lord, not because we want to stay in right standing with God, but because we are in right standing with God. Because of what He has done for you. And when you fall which you will do, you are forgiven. What it means for us in 2022 is assurance of salvation. Assurance. 
you can be certain that if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, he will keep you till the end. It gives assurance and it gives confidence. Let's look at the next one, this shadow or reality number two. And it's the shadow of the tabernacle and the temple. Listen to this. In Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Do you remember when we did our Exodus series, Sean McGochran taught the very last message. It was on Exodus 40, and it was all about the setting up of the first tabernacle, which was designed by God, built by men, and had all kinds of things in it that pointed to realities that were to come. Well, we find out from this scripture, from what Jesus has accomplished, that our priest, Jesus, is in the real tabernacle, in the real place of the presence of God. And that's cool, like that's neat to think about, that's good information to have, but we can kind of feel disconnected from it because we're talking about a tabernacle that was thousands of years ago versus a tabernacle that's, that's, in, that's not of this world, it's somewhere else. And so we can kind of feel like we're in this in-between place. So what does it mean for us, I wrote in 2021, but now it's 2022. Well, Sean told us that in that tabernacle, there was a, a place right in the center called the most holy place. And only one person could go in there once a year. And, and Sean said this, Moses wasn't able to enter the tabernacle because he could not stand in the unfiltered glory of the presence of God. And that's true. Listen what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Moses could not be in the presence of God. We can how crazy is that? We can. What can we do? We can draw near. We can draw near to him in prayer. He tells us to do that. We can go before the living God in prayer. How else? We have the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are, he says, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We carry the presence of God with us. And I want to encourage those of you maybe who, who are stuck in something like some sort of sin or difficulty or trial, and you can kind of feel like there's no way out of it or you're kind of like not like a real Christian. I know Joe has sometimes in messages talked about how as Christians, when we screw up, we sometimes put ourselves in like Christian timeout and we feel like we don't, we can't be with the Lord or, you know, whatever. I want to encourage you that that's not true. That's not true. All right, you have access to the Lord all the time. If you are a believer in Jesus and you feel like you're stuck like that, turn to him today, go into his presence today and be with him. He loves you. He forgives you. 
and reestablish that confidence and that assurance that maybe you feel like you're lacking, but is actually never gone, okay? That assurance, if you have believed in Jesus, it's never gone. But go to the Lord and be with him and reestablish that walk. Shadow and reality number three, the last one, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When the Israelites were called out of Egypt, we learned this in Exodus, they were brought to the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, and there they encountered this terrifying sight. The top of the mountain was enclosed in clouds. There was lightning and loud noises of thunder, and the whole earth shook. The presence of God shook the earth. Well, the author of Hebrews says, we haven't been called to something that can be touched like that mountain, or at least not yet. There's a kingdom of God that's coming. But for now, we haven't been called to something like that can, that can be touched. The kingdom that we've been called to is not of this world. And therefore, because it's not of this world, it can't be shaken. We've not been called to Mount Sinai, but we've been called to Mount Zion, which in Scripture is often referred to as the heavenly Jerusalem. So this kingdom of Israel that is established in the Old Testament is a shadow of the kingdom that is coming that Jesus has established. And when everything else is shaken, when everything else goes away, that kingdom will remain. Amen. Thank you, Pat. He says this in Hebrews 12, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So these three realities, these three shadows that have become realities in Jesus, the priesthood and the forever priesthood of Jesus, um, the tabernacle and the temple, and that, that our priest resides right now in the real presence of God, and that he has established a kingdom that cannot be shaken. These three arguments, and many more that we're going to hear over the next 14 weeks, establish that Jesus is better. He's better than anything that the Old Covenant points to, and he's better than anything in this world that we could possibly find that would try to capture our attention. For the original audience, in the face of much persecution and threat of very violent death, they were tempted to leave the, leave the faith. They were tempted to give up the only thing that was actually worth having. They were tempted to give up the only thing that was worth having. And the author is saying, don't leave that to return to the shadow just because it looks safer. All right? That's what he was saying to them. Now for us, we don't deal with something that extreme on a regular basis. We don't deal with the threat of violence and death because of our beliefs on a regular basis. 
but we sure do deal with things that want to capture our attention and take us away from the real substance of Christ. Do you remember... Um, do you remember in Scripture, Jesus told the story of the hidden treasure, the parable of the hidden treasure? You remember that? And the story went like this. There was a man. The kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has in order to buy that field. Okay, now think about that. In his joy... He goes and sells everything he has to buy the field because of the treasure that he found. So that guy thought this through. He did the math of what this would take in his life. And he decided that this treasure in this field that Jesus says is like the kingdom of God. This treasure is more valuable than the sum total of everything I have. Every single thing. It is more valuable than all of it put together. And I will gladly, because it says in his joy, I will gladly go and get rid of all of that stuff so that I can have this treasure. That is my prayer for, for me and for you as we go through this book of Hebrews, that you would be motivated to elevate the kingdom of God and the treasure that Jesus is beyond the sum total of everything you have. Beyond everything you have, beyond everything you've accomplished, above everything that you are, above everything that you want to be, above, above all of your goals, above all of your plans, that the treasure that Jesus is would be considered to be more valuable than all of that, because it is. Amen? The band will come up. I said at the beginning of of the message that um, we had a friend who used to say, uh, pursuit is the proof of desire, right? Pursuit is the proof of desire. And what strikes me about that is, for example, when we look at that parable I just talked about, that man offered proof. If you didn't know, like it, it actually says in that parable that when he finds the treasure, he hides it. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field, right? So if you were watching this situation from the outside, presumably the treasure was hidden and you don't know where it is and you don't know that it exists, you would look at this guy selling off all of his worldly possessions to then buy this field and you would probably think he was crazy. It would seem so foolish. But he was offering proof that he was motivated, proof that other people could see that he was motivated by the pursuit of a treasure. All right? So as we close, what I want our prayer to be as we go throughout these months, my prayer for you is going to be not only that Jesus would be your chief desire, but that you'd prove it, that we'd prove it, that I would prove it, that people who would look at us from the outside even if we look foolish in our endeavors, would think those people know what they're after and they are offering proof that they are pursuing something that they value. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand? We're going to pray and then we're going to worship the Lord.
Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that you saw fit to give us your perfect holy word. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to teach us by it and, and cause us to grow in it. Because Lord, we know that as we grow in your word, we are growing closer to you. And so Father, we ask that you would have your way with the coming weeks and months as we go through this series in Hebrews, Lord. We ask that you would teach us and enlighten us, open our eyes, help us to understand. But more than anything, Lord, we ask that you would motivate us to action, that you would bring about in our lives proof of our pursuit of Jesus. And Lord, we know that when we pursue you, we find you. So we ask that you would do amazing things in this community of believers. We give you thanks for it in advance because we know you're famous for doing that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.